Good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Miles Trump, and I am really grateful to be with you all today. Uh, as you're probably recognizing, I am not one of our normal pastors here. And so I have the, the great pleasure to get to guest preach today while our pastors, Joel and Julie, are spending some really good, well-deserved bonding time with their newborn daughter. And so I am uh, super, super excited to dig into this story today on the prodigal son. Um, but first, just a little bit about me as a whole. So I serve on our leadership team uh, here at Resurrection City. Uh, one of the really great uh, joyful things that I get to do to be able to serve our church. And I've been a member here since the church was founded back in early 2019, part of that initial launch team uh, that helped plant Resurrection City. And as I mentioned today, I'm super, super excited to have the opportunity to preach to you all from one of my personal favorite passages of scripture, which is the prodigal son, a story in Luke 15. What you'll see is that family is a theme that's really interwoven pretty deeply into the parable. Uh, and it's also something that is an important part of my life too. Would you guys mind moving the slides forward? For some reason, the clicker isn't working for me. You can jump to the next one. So this is my family. Uh, on the left, uh, or sorry, probably, yeah, the right maybe, depending on where you're looking, the picture of me and my wife, that's on our wedding day. Uh, we actually just celebrated uh, last week nine years of marriage. Uh, we got married at Hope Community Church, the church that Resurrection City planted out of in 2019. And in those nine years, we've had three daughters. Uh, so the two in the middle, the taller one is Naomi. She is five. She's going to kindergarten for the first time this year. Uh, holding on to her joyfully is Maya. She is three. And she is going to preschool for the first time this year. And then on the far end is Savannah, who is not quite three months old yet. And so she's doing everything for the first time this year. And uh, this is uh, just the, the makeup of our family, that we have a big, full, uh, sometimes chaotic, with controlled chaos in our family. And some of that is actually gonna pull through the story that we're talking about today. A little bit more about myself. Uh, in my day job, I do corporate communications for a food and agriculture company that's based here in the Twin Cities. But my first career love was journalism. So I studied that in college and actually started my career as a newspaper reporter, worked for small daily newspapers in uh, North Dakota and Southern Minnesota for the first few years of my career. And it's really a running theme throughout my career is that I just love a really good story. The way it can move you, the way it can compel you to act, make you feel something, shift your perspective as a whole. And I'm excited today because the prodigal son is a parable that's a truly masterful story from Jesus. And so I'm really excited to dig into it. But before I do that, I'm gonna open us up in prayer. So please pray with me. 
Dear Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to study your word today. We know that you have a great story to tell us, Lord. And we pray that you would speak to the people in this room today, the people who are hearing your word today through Jesus' storytelling. Help us to know more about you. Help us to search our own hearts on how we can follow you better. Help us to see ourselves in this epic story of the gospel that you're preaching. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so there is so much packed into this story. And so we are going to, I'm going to dive us in very quickly. We are going to do a high-level flyby of the story. This might not be the deepest dive on the prodigal son that maybe you've heard. But what I really want to do is unpack the story arc that Jesus is telling in this story and why he's telling it, as well as help us understand some of the cultural context that would give us a better understanding of what Jesus is saying. It's also a bit of a long verse. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read the whole story here to start, and then we'll walk through it kind of bit by bit as a whole. So it starts with, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. 
yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Whew, okay, it's a lot to read, it's a lot to digest, um, but there's a lot that I think Jesus has to say to us today in this parable. You might read that and be like, well, that family has some issues, like they got some stuff to work on. Or maybe you're like, that's like Sunday dinner at my parents' house every week. Either way, Jesus has a really great message about what he's doing, uh, what God is doing, and the kind of family he's creating. And so as a storyteller myself, I love how Jesus structures this story. It's almost like it has three acts. Some commentators say it has two, some say four, but I see three clear acts in this. Some of you may be familiar with the term three-act play, and three acts is just a really common and effective way to tell a story. And I love that Jesus is kind of taking this similar approach. Act one is the lost son, what we'll call the lost son. Act two is what we'll call the, the running father. And act three is what I call the other lost son. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through all three of those acts. We're going to unpack who's who in this parable. Does Jesus mean these are people that are being represented in, in real life somehow? We're going to talk about some of the cultural context that would have been relevant to a largely Jewish audience in this Greco-Roman world. And we're going to ask ourselves some practical questions about what we can take away from this. But before we do that, we actually need to rewind. You, remember, you might remember this story started, Jesus continued. So Jesus didn't just start telling this story out of nowhere. There was something in someone that actually sparked it. And it actually starts at the beginning of Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So we're setting the context before the parable. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So what's sparking this story from Jesus is actually an accusation against Jesus. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And in the term that they're using, it means accepting and recognizing these sinners, these tax collectors, as people like us. And so what the Pharisees and the legal, or the, the teachers of the law, the legal experts are saying is that these people, these sinners and tax collectors, they don't deserve to be treated like us. That because they've, they're lost in some way, that they've lost value. But that's not what Jesus says as we'll go deeper into the parable. But he doesn't launch, he doesn't actually launch into the prodigal son. He launches into a, the first of three parables and the prodigal son is actually the third. So he tells a story about a lost sheep. So this is his response. Then Jesus told them this parable. Pause for a second for a side note. Anytime Jesus responds in story form to someone 
who's accusing him of something, trying to trick them, it's gonna look not good for that person. Like he's gonna break down their logic. It's gonna make them kind of look a little bit silly. And he's gonna use it as an opportunity to talk about his kingdom, what he's building. I can just imagine the Pharisees heard him. You know, word would probably travel around. I imagine the Pharisees hear him starting this story and they're like, oh man, it's over. Let's pack it up. Let's go home. It's gonna be bad for us. So he continues. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and you lose one of them, loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And he continues with a second story. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my last coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we don't have time today to go deep into these two parables. But the message, if I'm fast forwarding to the message, the message that Jesus is giving is really clear here, that God loves lost things. And when they're found, he throws a big celebration for them. And so as soon as Jesus finishes this parable of the lost coin, that's when he launches into the parable of the prodigal son. And it's almost as if he's saying, just in case you aren't listening clearly on these first two stories, I'm gonna tell you this third story so that you uh, unmistakably hear everything that I'm saying. And also, just so you know that I'm serious about this, I'm gonna actually raise the stakes more in this third story much higher than I've done in these first two parables. And that is what brings us into act one of the prodigal son, which we'll call the lost son. As I mentioned, each part of the story, there's some really important cultural context that this ancient Jewish audience in this Greco-Roman world, they would have understood, but we might not understand today. So I'm, as we go through, I'm gonna pause on some of these to make sure that we just understand the weight and the significance of the story that Jesus is telling. And that first piece of cultural context is actually how the story starts. It starts in a pretty shocking way. Jesus says there's a man who had two sons and the younger one said to the, his father, father, give me my share of the estate. To any of the listeners, that would have been a wild thing to ask your dad, to ask your father. What would have happened is if the father were to pass away, the younger son and the older son, they would receive an inheritance as part of this Jewish custom. The older son would have received a little bit more because he had a bit more responsibility on him as a whole, but they both would have received some inheritance. But for the younger son to ask the father for it, while the father is alive is audacious. 
it's an unheard of sort of audacious claim. And what Jesus is signaling in the story is it's the younger son's first step on his way to becoming lost. It's a rejection of his family, the people who love him and have cared for him up until this point in his life. And as I showed you, I've got three kids. I imagine one of my kids saying this to me and how I would react. And it, wouldn't, it would not be good. I know it would not be good. But that's not how the father reacts in this story. His response is almost equally as shocking. He gives it to him. He gives the son his inheritance. And that also implies, as the commentators say, that he gives the older son his inheritance too, which is going to become important later on in the story. And so what does the younger son do? He liquidates whatever it is, and then he takes the money, and he heads toward wild living. Later in the story, the older son goes as far as to say he wastes his inheritance on prostitutes. So this is wild living. He leaves behind not only his family that cares about him, loves him, but he's also leaving behind cultural expectation that as a son, he's going to stay and care for his father and care for his family into old age. But he rejects that painfully, shockingly. He just takes the money and runs off. I think it's important to note that in Jewish culture, this would have been something that would be really embarrassing for this family. I mean, just you can imagine even today, imagine what like all the townspeople would say. Like, did you hear what that one kid said to his father when he asked him? That's crazy. Yeah, but did you hear the father, he actually gave him the money? That's crazy. I would never do that. I would never do that. Right? Like, you can imagine what people would say and the shame that this would bring. In his book, uh, Luke for Everyone, if you don't mind flipping to the next slide, the clicker is not working for me for some reason. Uh, in his book, Luke for Everyone, N.T. Wright says, the shame that this would bring on the family would be added to the shame that the son had already brought on the father by asking for his share before the father's death. It was the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. This is a big, terrible act. And so what happens next? We know the son runs off. He foolishly blows through all the money. And then a famine hits. And he's sort of down and out. He doesn't have anything. So he resorts to being someone's hired hand to feed their pigs. And he even wishes he could eat what the pigs are eating because he's so in need of food. He's got nothing. The pigs are another cultural context <clears throat> that are not insignificant to the story. Jewish people would have had nothing to do with pigs. This kind of work would actually have been considered like the ultimate indignity, very undignified work. And that's because pigs were thought to be Ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And so it's another way that Jesus is showing us in this story how lost, how wayward the, the younger son is becoming. Sort of how far he's fallen and how much shame he's brought on those who love him. We're meant to understand the gravity of how lost the son is. And the story continues. The son sort of has a light bulb moment, and he devises a plan. 
he remembers his father, and he says, if I just go back home, my dad is at least going to treat me like his hired hands. And if he does that, at least I won't starve to death, because they've at least got food to eat. So I won't starve, and I can at least just survive. We don't know exactly, <clears throat> excuse me, we don't know exactly what the son's intent is here. Is he being deceptive? Is he trying to take advantage of his father's love? Is he truly repenting? Um, we do know that the wording here, he comes to his senses, is what brings him back, brings him on the journey back to his father. And I think that's the bigger point that Jesus is making, is that the son is coming back home. He's returning to his father. And he has a plan. He like puts together this speech that he's going to say. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants so I don't starve to death. It's a really sad and it's a really terrible way that this story starts. And Jesus wants us to like feel the gravity of it as we're listening to it. But it doesn't stay that way, fortunately. Brings us in to act two, the running father. What does the father do? But while he was still a long way off, so while he, the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. It's amazing, right? Because remember who this father is in this story. He's the same man that was shamed, probably publicly, by his son, who was told in so many words, I wish you were dead. I just want what you can provide for me, and I'm leaving you. I'm not going to care for you as you get older. Imagine what your response might be when you see the son coming back. Like, I can imagine, I can imagine resentment, right? Like, I knew you weren't going to make it out on your own. Or belittling. Like, oh, look who's back. It's my know-it-all son who thought he knew everything, and now he's got to come back home. Or rejection, right? Just repaying the younger son with the rejection that he gave to the father. Not even going out to see him. Not even talking to him. But what does this father do? While the son was still a long way off, the father sees him, and he's filled with compassion. So much so that he runs to him. The running is more significant than we might initially think. I imagine there's a lot of people in here who run. Might run for exercise, might run for fun, see some hands raised, might run after your kids. But this is another area where we have to understand the cultural context. Because in the first century, a Middle Eastern man like this would have never, ever run. Especially a wealthy landowner like this. Because what running meant it meant holding up your tunic so that you, when you were running, you wouldn't trip over it as you were running. And that meant you would have been showing your bare legs. And in this culture, that would have been humiliating to do. It would have been shameful to show your bare legs and run in this way, especially publicly, like through a town. But not this father, right? He runs to his son when he sees him. And what I love about this father in the story is that 
He's saying, I'm not going to let shame deter me from the love of my younger son. And in fact, I'm just going to roll up my tunic and I'm going to run and I'll just take the shame upon me. If people want to give that to me, I'll take the shame upon me. As long as I can just get to my son and hug him and kiss him and embrace him. It's really beautiful. And what else happens when he gets there? His compassion, the compassion that he has that uh, we, we saw in the earlier verse, it actually supersedes the son's plan. So remember, the son had this speech that he was going to give, right? But he only gets partway through the speech. He only gets partway through what he wants to say before the father says, quick, we need the robe, we need the sandals, we need the ring, put it all on him, and let's kill the calf. Whatever your delicacy, whatever is the finest meal you can imagine, we're going to have that. And call everybody and let's celebrate. Because he was lost, my son was lost, and now he's found. And I think it's at this point in the parable, we can start to parse out, like, who is represented as who here? I think this is not a parable where it's like shrouded in mystery and there's lots of different ways you can slice and dice it as to who is who. I think Jesus is trying to make it pretty clear to all the people who are listening to this story. So I'm not going to make anybody guess either. The father here represents God and the younger son represents the repentant sinner, the people who were lost, but they turn away and they go back to the father. They come back home. And we'll find out soon who the elder son represents. So far, this parable is painting, I think this really, it's a beautiful kind of tender picture of what God thinks about repentant sinners. He runs after them. He embraces them. He throws a party for them, invites everybody to join and celebrate. And that's who God is. That's what Jesus wants us to understand in this parable. He's a God of compassion. He's a God who celebrates lost things. And again, that when they're lost and then found, there's a big party to celebrate. Now, the story could end there. And you could read it and take all those things away. Everything that we've talked about, you could take that away. It could end right there. But the story arc is not complete yet because there's another character who's been off stage for a while, but now he's coming back on stage. And that's the elder son, who I have called the other lost son. What's been going on with him the whole time? This is all happening. He's been out in the field. He's been working all day. And he hears music. He hears dancing. He smells the prime rib or whatever it is that's being cooked. And one of the servants runs up and tells him, hey, your little brother is back. And dad is cooking and partying with him to celebrate his return. This is a really important question. What is the elder son's reaction? The older brother became angry and refused to go in. He starts listing off these grievances with the father that he's been slaving for him, that he's never disobeyed any of his orders, 
Yet the father's never even given him a young goat for his friends. I think what's happening here is the elder son is becoming lost in his own way too. He's distancing himself from the father and from the family in a different way, but in the grand scheme of things, not all that different from what the younger son is doing. But why he's doing it is different. Because he thinks that the younger brother who is lost just isn't quite as good as he is. He thinks that because the younger brother was lost, he also lost some of his value as a human being. And he treats the younger brother's return to the family with disdain. You're not partying with me, he says to the father, but you're partying with a man like that? Does that sound familiar? You have to go back to Luke 15. The Pharisees and the legal experts say a very similar thing, right? This man welcomes and eats with sinners, with people like that. He's not partying with us, he's partying with people like that. And he should be ashamed of that. The older brother, he represents the Pharisees, the legal experts, the people who would say that those who were lost have lost some of their value. And now we're starting to get more of a full picture of the story here and what Jesus is trying to say to the listeners. Let's go back into the story. What does the father do then? How does he address the elder brother? He invites him in to the party too, right? He invites the elder brother into the celebration. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't punish him. He doesn't turn his face away from him. He invites him in. And so I think what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the legal experts is, you all are invited to this party too, where we celebrate lost things. That this God looks upon you with compassion too, and you are invited. And in my kingdom, these people that you call sinners, these people that you call tax collectors, that you think have lost value, they're your brothers and sisters too. But you gotta come into the party, come into the party and celebrate that with us. And so he pleads with them, come in. And the parable ends on this open invitation to the elder brother. It ends here. We don't know what happens next, but because it's a really good story, I'm sure we have questions. Does the older brother go into the party? If he does, do him and the younger son, his little brother, how does that interaction go? How, do the three of them talk? Do, does he not go in? Does he stay outside? Just what happens next, I think we wanna know. But I think what Jesus is doing, or one important thing he's done in the parable, is that he's turned the story back on us in a way. So Rembrandt, the famous Dutch painter, he's got two paintings of the prodigal son. One of them is the, the younger son returning, and the other is the younger son either in the brothel or in the tavern, is what it's um, called. And what's interesting about that second painting is when he paints the younger son, Guess whose face he uses in that? He uses his own face. 
It's his self-image. It's his own image on the, on the younger lost son. The commentator Klein Snodgrass, who we've quoted a lot in this series on the parables, he has such a great quote about this. He says, as we think about the personal application of this story, that the prodigals are not the other people. The prodigals are not the other people. They're us, right? Sometimes we get lost too. We lose our way. We stray from the Father. We come to our senses, and then we return to his loving embrace. Or we feel like we're owed more, that we deserve more from God than other people who we think are lower than us. We just have to be honest that we do that. So this story is about us too. And so instead of asking questions about how the story ends, we can start to ask some questions about ourselves and how we move forward in light of God's compassion, his grace, his mercy. So as we close today, I have a few that I just hope we can all reflect on. Number one is, do you, like the younger son, feel lost and disconnected from God? Is there a place in your life where you feel that way? Because if so, the story is for you. Do you, like the father, celebrate at the return of those who are lost? Do you rejoice? Do you throw a party? Do you call everybody you know and do that? Because whether the answer is yes or no, this story is for you. And do you, like the elder son, feel that you deserve more from God than those who have lost their way? Because this story is for you too. I think the beauty of Jesus's message in this parable and how he might answer these questions, the beauty of it is in how simple it is. If you're lost, just come back home. Come back home is the message because God can't wait to embrace you when you get here. If someone you know is lost and becomes found, celebrate, rejoice. Do the best meal and the biggest party you can. Be happy, because that's what God would do. And if you find yourself standing on the outskirts of one of those celebrations, maybe feeling sorry for yourself, or like you feel like you deserve it should be you and not them, accept the Father's invitation, come into the party. Because it's a party that's big enough for both the righteous and the unrighteous. It's a party that's big enough for both the lost and the found. Please pray with me. Lord, we just thank you that you're a God of compassion. We thank you that you're a God who is quick to dole out your compassion, who is quick to look for us as we're returning and quick to hug us, embrace us, and run to us. And we thank you for that. We pray that we would take this message and this story and apply it to our lives, that we would celebrate those who become lost and are found, 
And that if we find ourselves on the outside of that party, that we would be humble enough to accept the invitation to come in because we know what you're building in the party, what your kingdom is, is far greater than anything we can imagine. We thank you, Lauren, and we love you, and we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.